just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Francesca Wade, whose first book is called, well, I want to call it um, Square Haunting, but it's actually Square Haunting, presumably. And it's a kind of group biography of five very eminent women who lived between the beginning of the First World War and the end of the Second World War, in, you know, fits and patches, in Mecklenburg Square in Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg in, in Bloomsbury. <laughs> I don't think they knew how to spell it, let alone say it. So. There's a lot of odd spellings in this book. Francesca, start with the square. What was, you know, how did you hit on that kind of central thing for this mm-hmm. group biography? Well, Mecklenburg Square is right out on the eastern edge of Bloomsbury. So even though it's very central within London, it's a slightly hidden kind of enclave. It's not really a thoroughfare. So I, although I'd lived in London all my life, hadn't really been through it until I passed through on my way to check out the blue plaque for HD, who I had studied at university. And while I was there, I was amazed wandering around, looking up at these houses. And I realised I'd I'd learned that Virginia Woolf, another of my favourite writers, had lived in the very same place. And when I did a bit more research later, I realised that several other interesting women writers, some of whom I hadn't heard of, had lived in the square as well. And I started to wonder what had brought them all there. And I began to think about Woolf's essay, Room of One's Own, which had always been a very kind of formative book for me and started to think about what she says there about what women need in order to be writers the room sort of literally a space to live where you won't be distracted but also everything metaphorically that that room of one's own means and that essay does sort of shape the book in some ways or at least it's in the background to the whole thing yeah I think it became a kind of guiding force for this investigation and it's what drew the women together. I mean the fact that they all happen to live in the square is really a coincidence. They aren't exactly a social circle. A few of them knew each other or their paths crossed and as I researched I in fact found more and more sort of odd moments where their paths crossed. Sort of shared lovers and And they lived didn't they at different ages, different points in their career, different lengths of time there. Mm. But, I mean, we should say who the five women are. They're, they're Wolf, of course, H.D., yep. Hilda Doolittle, the Imagist poet. They are Eileen Power, mm-hmm. Dorothy L. Sayers and Jane Harrison. Let's sort of stop. I mean, Jane Harrison appears. She's the oldest of them and mm. she's there right at the end of her life. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about her? Because she actually appears in A Room of One's Own, which is a kind of brilliant you know, <laughs> yeah. conceit with which to open it. You know? Yeah, well, Wolf begins A Room of One's Own by wandering around at Cambridge College and she's shut out of the library and she starts to reflect on how women have you know, literally and, and metaphorically been shut out of institutions of learning and of power throughout centuries. Um, and then she she has a sort of moment where she has a kind of vision of Jane of, of a woman who's just written, who's just referred to as J.H., who is a scholar kind of breezing through the grounds of a women's college. And this moment gives Wolf kind of hope and sort of inspires her to go on to think that, you know, women have been able to pursue the sort of intellectual freedom that she wants. Um, so Jane Harrison's example is very bolstering to her. And Jane Harrison is a interesting one. I think all of the women in the book 
when I looked at them through the lens of the time they happened to live in Mecklenburg Square, for each of them, it was a moment of kind of transition or of definition or self-definition. And for some of them who moved there quite early in their careers, it was a moment of kind of announcement as they were just working out who they were or who they wanted to be. But for Jane Harrison, she moved into the square in her 70s and it was a complete moment of change. Um, she was a generation older than Wolf and the other women in the book. She'd been one of the first students to study, women students to study at Cambridge. But she had a really difficult time being accepted by the kind of scholarly establishment. And it took her a long time to find a job. And it wasn't until she was almost 50 that she was invited back to Newnham College, Cambridge, and given a position where she could write the books that Wolf goes on to to describe. Well, she had this very tricky road to hoe, didn't she? Because she sort of... You know, she wanted to be an academic and come back into academia, but she had to spend, yeah. what, three decades or something. Yeah. It's actually kind of almost being a sort of travelling entertainer, you know, giving yeah. lectures and putting on shows and, you know, doing her academic work as a sort of public performance before yeah. they let her go back to Newnham and start writing Yeah, books. completely. She's an incredible, I think, example of sort of determination to pursue an intellectual life, even when the traditional routes were, she was finding them closed. I mean, she kept applying for these professorships at universities and being turned down, but instead she she lectured to, to working men's clubs, to children in schools, to sort of huge town halls packed with mothers and children. And she also travelled around the world on visiting archaeological digs, which were happening kind of across Europe and the Middle East in these years. And so while... She was a classicist, we should say. She was a I classicist. Mean, but, you know, <laughs> and so while... Mary Beard, ineluctably. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Beard, in fact, wrote a biography of her. Yeah. There's definite kinship. Um, but so while her friends and colleagues were, you know, were in the ivory tower teaching and getting salaries she was you know it was piecemeal she was sort of freelance but she was gathering this fascinating and really cutting edge material and being kind of outside the establishment I guess gave her a very different perspective on the ancient world which she then really turned into these amazing scholarly but also kind of imaginative incredibly wide-ranging works of history which wrote back a forgotten history of mother worship which yeah, she sort of re- reframes the whole classical canon of gods, doesn't she? Yeah, she argued that the kind of literary representation of Greek gods that we know from Homer and Greek tragedy with you know, Zeus as the head of a, of a kind of nuclear family of, um, you know, run by a patriarch was actually kind of erasing a history of mother worship that had existed long before and that placed a lot of value on the kind of community worship led by women. Um, and when her books came out, people in Cambridge particularly were absolutely horrified because it was clearly a threat to it shows how history is constructed, you know, with a very much with an eye to preserving a status quo. And that's something that Wolf and Eileen Power, another historian in my book, also wrote about and interrogated very significantly. I mean, you know, you describe how Harrison and all these sort of dandruffy old male dons said, you know, well, she's misunderstanding Latin <laughs> idioms and this is, you know, scholarship's terrible. I mean, you, you know, you yourself say she makes these great bold leaps of imaginative inference. Mm. How much now does her scholarship stand up? I mean, do, do people think she was, she was onto the right thing? I think so. I think she's an interesting figure in that she made such bold leaps that there was, you know, the ballpark was wide and a lot of her theories have sort of been superseded to the extent that she isn't always, and she probably isn't taught today exactly, but 
the subsequent scholars wouldn't have kind of been able to make the 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 kind of revisions that they have without someone like her coming along and and saying it first and also just changing the way that we even conceive of history I mean Wolf talks about in Room of One's Own how how history is seen as the public events of great men and that's what's considered important and worth recording and so having someone like Jane Harrison come along and say you know perhaps if we look at different sources and we look for different things we'll actually form a history that's that's radically different and changes the way that we conceive of power and could actually have an effect on the way that we that we look at women's roles today. And then in her 70s, as you say, she suddenly packs it all in, stops yeah. being a classicist, starts studying Russian and moves to Mecklenburg Square and burns all her papers. Of I course. mean, what, do you, you sort of skate around, I think, with probably a proper scholarly caution, exactly why that happened. But mm. do you have an idea? What, I mean, having inhabited I, her, why do you, why do you think she Well, I think she care? was exhausted. I mean, she had spent years being really quite forcefully denigrated at Cambridge. And I think... Being at Newnham, a women's college, which was quite a supportive environment, helped her a lot and enabled her to write these books. But within the wider university in the classics faculty, she had real enemies and I think who made life pretty difficult. And in the meantime, Cambridge refused to give women degrees. So Oxford University passed a statute allowing women to take degrees um, and graduate in 1920 and Dorothy Sayers another of my subjects was in the first graduation ceremony but Jane Harrison had been campaigning for Cambridge to do the same thing for years and they kept rejecting it and in I think 1921 there was a final kind of climactic vote which was rejected and a mob kind of marched on Newnham and vandalized the college gates and (laughs) it was horrifying and I think she just felt that she didn't any longer want to be in an institution which was making it clear that it didn't really want her. And also she had, by this point, had become fascinated by Russian. She'd started learning the language during the First World War and had then been studying it for years afterwards and uh, was just absolutely fascinated, particularly by the grammar and by the language and the culture and history and religion. She was more interested in the language, wasn't she, than she was in, in <laughs> yeah, the literature in some sense. <laughs> she was, yeah. It was funny because cause Russian literature in Britain at that time was... was a huge passion. Constance Garnett had been translating the works of the kind of 19th century greats since 1912. And so people like Wolfe and Mansfield and D.H. Lawrence were reading them, you know, with the latest bestsellers and finding so much in them. But Harrison wasn't so interested in that. What she was interested in is the language, because she thought that language was the way that you really get to the heart of, of people. And maybe, I mean, it's probably not as agile a jump as you make in your in your book, but H.D. seems to, you know, who's, who's the person you deal with first. And as, as as I was reading about Jane Harrison, who comes after it in the book, there was that sense of her rewriting mm. sort of the classics from a female point of view, which is exactly what H.D. went on to do, presumably yeah. somewhat under the influence of... I think indirectly under the influence. She, I wish I could have found a direct connection, but... I don't think HD ever refers to Harrison directly, but she does refer to being on a cruise ship and hearing some lectures um, where it's very clear that the lecturer was kind of spouting Jane Harrison and she writes to Briar, her partner, to say, you know, did you realise there were mother mother cults behind, you know, all of what we what we've been seeing? So she 
Um, she knew about that work and she knew the work of Gilbert Murray, a good friend of Harrison's, who also was very influenced by her theories. Yeah, and HD, particularly during the First World War, which is when she was living in Mecklenburg Square, she began to write poetry, um, taking its voices from heroines of ancient myth, um, like Helen of Troy and Cassandra. I thought Leader. invented that. <laughs> <laughs> Her poems are great. Margaret Atwood has done it. Yeah, as well yeah. As, uh, but be- yeah, before she got there the, first. <laughs> before the current trend for. And this Mecklenburg Square, HD wasn't there for all that long, was she? But it was this absolutely kind of pivotal time mm. in her life to which she constantly referred. Why was that? Why mm. was it this? It was a real time of personal crisis, I think. HD moved into the square in 1916, although the blue plaque incorrectly says 1917. Um, <laughs> but she... Uh, um, she her husband, Richard Aldington, who was also a poet, had just been called up for war. And so she was left there on her own, um, seeing him only whenever he could come back on leave. Um, and when he came back on leave, he was carrying on an affair with a woman who lived upstairs. Yeah, he doesn't emerge from much credit, with much credit from this whole account. <laughs> Not a huge amount, I think. I mean, it was a difficult time for him too, but HD had also experienced a stillbirth in 1915, which she always really associated with the war and the kind of death all around, which had sort of, you know, caused this death within her. It was a real trauma. And she was alone in the square. She was writing, but she was tearing up work that she was doing. She was doing a lot of translation from the female choruses from Euripides, in particular focusing on female voices who feel kind of powerless against the war raging around them. And I think that really shows her mindset in this um in this year or two. Yeah. And did yeah, I mean one one detail is that she came back you know, she she went into an analysis with Freud later. You know, the yeah. actual Freud. <laughs> yeah. And yet it was the Mecklenburg Square period that he said, you know, you're blocked, you can't write, you can't get yeah. this is what you need to process. Yeah, she she was she left the square in nineteen eighteen. She went off to Cornwall with a man called Cecil Gray, um who she'd also met emerges with no credit <laughs> No this. credit for him. He wasn't even having a tough time, no excuse. Um but he was a friend of D. H. Lawrence who knew H D and who in fact came to stay in the square for a a short but intense period. So HD left, moved to Cornwall, became pregnant. Gray left her immediately, and she had her he baby. Doesn't even mention her in his <laughs> memoirs. Is the thing that detail no, absolutely kind of. <laughs> it's it's astonishing. It's there's an interesting sort of coda where years and years later he bumps into Perdita HD. Well, in HD's and his daughter, when Perdita had grown up sort of knowing that her father was was this man because Briar had once shown her one of his books and given her a kind of knowing look. Briar being, um, um, being HD's, HD's girlfriend. Uh, yeah, the sort of partner who, they, who stepped in at this moment. They met in July 1918 and Briar, well, while HD was pregnant and Briar was kind of amazing and supported her and helped bring up Perdita. But, Sorry, Perdita met Cecil Gray and um, how did that and go? And they... They just sort of looked at each other and um, they sort of knew that they both knew, but they didn't say anything and they didn't meet again. And HD years later also wrote to Cecil Gray and said, you know, just wondering how you're doing and, you know, if you would like to have a coffee, <laughs> essentially, I'm, I'm sort of, I've forgiven you, um, but he didn't write back. 
So, <laughs> but in 1933, HD went to Freud. She was experiencing writer's block. She'd been since 1918, since she left the square, she had through the 20s she worked on a kind of cycle of novels dealing with this period of her life and she wrote she wrote this story over and over again in very different ways she kind of transposed the action to a roman army camp at one stage um, she wrote in kind of quite different voices and different tones and she gave really different emphasis to different events so it's difficult to when you're sorting through all of the different versions to find a lot of consistency but none of these were published at the time she wrote destroy your, on the manuscript your- but your account of it sort of slightly suggests that, you know, in the fullness of time, we're going to rebalance our assessment of HD toward, for, away from, you know, HD imagist as invented mm. by Ezra Pound and towards HD as a sort of auto-fictionist. Yeah, I mean, she could definitely be read in that right. I mean, light. I mean, she wrote her life over and over again, and it was really her way, I think, of of defining who she was. I think through her life, she had been very much in the shadow of men. I mean, Ezra Pound was her fiancé when they were teenagers and he was very kind of overbearing and didn't think much of her work at that point. He did he did later, but by that point she was sort of hoping to, to break a bit free. But he was the one who sent her poems to a, a literary magazine under the initials HD, which she always then had to publish under because that was sort of who she was famous as, but she always felt it, you know, it reminded her too much of Pound. And I think this happened again with Freud. She was um, in the analysis. He said to her quite casually, I don't think that women amount to much unless they are drawing inspiration from a from a man. Um, and I mean, I think he was Not being deliberately provocative. Um, but what he told her was that he could see that this period in the square was important to her and that she needed to go back to this novel that she had been working on and so she did and in 1960 um, a version called Bid Me to Live um, was finally published. And all its victims brilliantly hated it didn't they? Another rotter John Cornos. Yeah. Corno? Cornos? Cornos, yeah. Cornos. and his then was it the, what, the Arabella um, who was Arabella. the girl he ran off with? Yeah. They were both absolutely furious. Yeah when the, when the novel came out in 1960 she was in a nursing home. I think they were possibly both in separate nursing homes and they hadn't been in touch for, you know, for 40 years, but they wrote each other angry letters saying, you know, this, none of this happened. HD is just bitter. And, um, and meanwhile, other people were very confused because they, it looked from the novel as if HD had had a kind of passionate affair with D.H. Lawrence because of the way that these very autobiographical characters were drawn. So the novel caused... A lot, of, quite a sort of literary stir and very sort of esoteric. It's not circles. clear what her relationship with Lawrence was, is it? I mean, that remains a kind of slightly it's, question mark. Or do it's you... a, it's an interesting and complex kind of power struggle. I don't think there was a sexual relationship. In fact, she even once at one stage writes to Briar, "I'm so glad I didn't have sex with T.H. Lawrence." Um, but it, what it is, I think, is her, her final attempt to fully define herself as a writer she refers to something that Lawrence said in back in the war years about her poetry where this character Frederico tells Julia that she shouldn't try to write anything universal she should only try to speak from female experience Um, and the end of this final novel that HD wrote in 1960 is a letter back to Frederico where she says in order to be free and whole and you know achieve my 
potential as a writer I've got to be allowed to to write what I want and to to say something universal and there's a really a really nice echo of the phrasing that Wolf uses in A Room of One's Own about about how how the mind is you know is sort of bisexual and it's you know you can't a woman can't afford to be pigeonholed into a kind of subordinate female position she's got to find a way to break out of those stereotypes and that is kind of true freedom as a writer yes well if some of the you know as much as jane harrison's influence runs through it there's also obviously the wolf essay is clear that Mm. you know hd's read it and Mm. dorothy sayers who's another of your characters is is i think you say sort of Mm. influenced by yeah, and echoes it sometimes. It's definitely the same idea. I mean, Dorothy says is an interesting one for again with this question of how you sort of combine intellectual and emotional fulfilment. She, she in fact had a relationship with John Cornos, who we were just talking yes, about, exactly. who, who bizarrely managed to write hugely insulting novels about both HD and Dorothy Sayers. Yes, um, sort of trying but he, to he set kind of gets his come up into straight. both of their books as well, doesn't he? I mean, he, he comes yeah. out terribly of both of them, <laughs> unfortunately. But so Sayers moved to the square while she was working on her first book. She just left university. She knew that she wanted to be a writer. That was sort of all she wanted. But she knew that, you know, it was going to be, there were no guarantees. She She had to do a lot of kind of freelance work to keep up the rent on her flat and her parents were were supportive and generous but they did occasionally say to her are you sure that this writing thing is a good idea maybe it would be better to do that as a hobby and you know do something a bit more secure but she was insistent that she just wanted to give this novel ago. Also and crime novels, everyone was sort of slightly pissing on crime novels. Well, yeah, right? well she... John Cornos, her little boyfriend at the time, she wrote sort of sadly to her parents that John prefers his art with a capital A and doesn't seem to think much of what I'm doing and you can you can see that sense, I mean of how much her confidence was being battered from all sides during this time and she just remained as resolute as she possibly could. Um, and yet the first book Took and off, it paid off. I mean, yeah, she. Launched, she you know, by it's that. A, it wasn't years of struggle. And... No, she managed to finish and publish *Whose Body*, and yeah, Lord Peter Wimsey lives on, and and is so beloved today. And I think I guess I first came to say is through her novel *Gaudy Night*, which I think has still got so much love today. It's a incredibly interesting and moving and poignant detective novel that is also an exploration of exactly the questions that I think all the women in this book are asking about what conditions women need in order to to work and live as they want and not feel subsumed in a relationship but whether it's possible to find a relationship or a way of life that that is kind of happy as well as stimulating. What's very interesting is the way she kind of traces you know she's writing sort of crime novels or less obviously crime novels as they go on but these books, which are actually in the form of, you know, Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane, start mm. kind of negotiating her ideas about relationships. Yeah, and I mean, Gordy Knight is a novel of ideas. You know, it's an intellectual feat. She was not at all a snob about literary fiction. She wrote that, you know, she didn't see any reason why crime novels, you know, were any any less literary than, you know, than what someone like Virginia Woolf was writing, because the crime novel not only was a democratic and popular form, but also could easily be a vehicle for moral questions. Um, and 
she sort of lamented that quite a lot of her contemporaries were getting so bound up in writing these kind of intricate puzzle books um, that they were losing sight of that. But what she really wanted to keep doing was was promote the detective genre as a as a way to write. Doesn't doesn't the wretched Cornus at one point get a royalty (laughs) statement saying no No sales? sales. And he says, only a great man. (laughs) Only a great man, yeah, exactly. He can't be both a great man and a bestseller, he says to his his friend who he writes sort of annoyed letters to. But Sayers, she had her eye on the sales charts as well. She needed to make money. Did Wolf read Sayers? Did she dig her? Do we know? I mean... know if Wolf read Sayers. Sayers, Sayers kind of favourite book was by E.C. Bentley called Trent's Last Case, which was published in 1913. And she saw that as a great example of the kind of moral detective story. And Wolf writes in her diary that she has a passion for that novel. So there's overlap. There's some, some connection. Um, <laughs> I wish I knew. But Sayers, obviously, you know, all of these women make at various points, you know, dreadful sacrifices. And Sayers is, is almost kind of Mm. most dreadful and surprising and weird one. Yeah. And she, you know, has a child and gives it up and then kind of seems to carry on kind of blithely, doesn't she? Yeah, well, I mean, I was so interested with all of them in in looking at... HD and Sayers were the only two of the of the women who became mothers and, it's, and both of them became mothers in quite similar and quite kind of strange circumstances. And Sayers' situation is a really stark example of that conflict between, you know, work and personal life, which is something, you know, we still talk about today. But she, after she, after John Cornos left her, she took up quite briefly with a kind of motorbike enthusiast called Bill White, who she'd met. Another man who doesn't emerge with any credit from this. (laughs) No, who at least was a bit more fun and he took her dancing and, you know, probably would have enjoyed her books in a way that Cornos wouldn't. But But he didn't mention his wife and children. He didn't mention (laughs) his wife and children until she was pregnant. And so then she was faced with with this awful choice because she was completely determined to be a writer and she knew that it would be difficult if she was a single mother and I mean her parents had always been very supportive she was an only child and but she felt that she couldn't tell them so she at this point she was working at an advertising agency um, and she kind of called in sick and took eight weeks off in which time she had the baby breastfed it for a period and then gave it to her cousin who had a foster home in Oxford and went back to work and (laughs) got on with things and it's she doesn't really write many letters about this period and there isn't a diary so it's difficult to really work out how painful it was except that you can imagine but nobody knew and no one knew no she she told her cousin she wrote to her first just saying do you have space for a child that I've heard about who needs a home? And her and Asking then for a friend. Asking yeah. for a friend. And then she wrote another letter where she says, actually, all right, it's me. She once kind of confessed it to a woman on a train um, who, I don't know what she would have thought about this. And the only other person she told, apart from the man she later married, was John Cornos. There's an incredible series of letters that she wrote to him a few years later when she really had seen the light about their relationship and about how much he had kind of ground her down at a time when she would have loved to have been kind of supported in her writing and also to have formed a real relationship of equals. And, And the letters that she writes to him there where she's 
kind of explaining everything that she would have liked from a relationship and you know the only kind of relationship she could imagine being in would be a mutually supportive one where no one is expected to you know to serve the other one or no one's interests are considered more important than the others um, but are shared and that is she didn't really find that in life she did get married but it seems the relationship wasn't an especially happy one but this she kind of spent the rest of her life working it out in fiction and so she created this character Harriet Vane who is shares a lot of characteristics with herself and in her book Strong Poison is on trial for murdering a man who is suspiciously sounds like John Cornell's um, and um, he's a muse really <laughs> he's a muse and her relationship with Lord Peter Whimsey the detective continues through three or four books um, where Sayers is working out through the detective novel how Harriet can kind of accept the the suit of Lord Peter without losing her own dignity and without compromising her own career as a writer and her own sort of self-belief as an independent woman. She was poison if it goes wrong. Um, <laughs> now, the other one who's less well-known now, I think, except in economics, is Eileen Power, mm. who seems a bit of an odd one because she's not a writer in quite the way that the others were. But she's sort of a medieval economic historian, isn't she? Yeah. And yet, somehow that becomes very, very involved in current politics. I mean, mm. tell me a bit about, about who she was. She's an amazing character. She's, I mean, she's someone I hadn't known about before I started writing the book, but I you know, absolutely love finding out more about her, not only because she was a very fun and quite flamboyant character. She held kind of kitchen dances in her at 20 Mecklenburg Square, which politicians and artists and Virginia Woolf came to them and she generally just seems to have really known how to have a good time. There's a rumour that she flew to Paris every time she published an article and got a new dress. Um, and all of that, that sort of reputation meant that, like Jane Harrison, within the kind of scholarly establishment, she was often dismissed she didn't look like what you would expect an academic to look like there's a lovely description of all these, these old scholars sort of coming to a high table and yeah. seeing a very glamorous lady to a guest in a beautiful of, dress and guest of honor suddenly realizing she's the great wine they've come to meet yeah yeah i think she sort of enjoyed kind of playing up to people's expectations because she knew that you know that she would surprise them and be able to to just sort of watch them change their minds before her i think she kind of relished that but also in practical terms did find it difficult I mean she was constantly paid less than her male contemporaries and she knew it I mean she the gender pay gap persists um and she and she hated it but she was another one who sort of had to pack in Cambridge didn't she yeah she started off at Cambridge a kind of generation after Harrison um and then she came to the London School of Economics, which was a relatively new university founded on quite progressive principles. Um, it was co-educational and a lot of her colleagues were very involved in contemporary politics, people like Harold Lasky and R.H. Tawney. Um, so she joined this faculty really kind of abuzz with ideas. A lot of them were involved in the Labour Party, which was a relatively new movement at that time. It's kind of Gateskill's knocking around at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, she had people like Hugh Gateskill, Hugh Dalton... Evan Durbin were her were her friends and they used to come to the kitchen and sit around the table and talk about you know the future of democratic socialism I think it was an exciting but is it is it right that the I mean it seems to be implied in your book that all the work she's doing which is you know a lot of it's on sort of the medieval wool trade and so forth mm. is 
forms part of a kind of theory of capitalism and historical behaviour that actually mm. informs these discussions about what the Labour Party should do Yeah, in the definitely. I mean, her first book was called... Well, her sort of first big hit was called Medieval People, and that was a very early work of social history. It looked at, at ordinary people in the Middle Ages, and it really kind of fleshed out the details of their everyday lives in a way that, you know, as we were saying, history is the biographies of great men. Um, she was she was saying, actually, no, you know, I'm more interested in the kind of things that affected normal people, you know, women, working class people, and that hadn't really been been done much before. I mean, that idea of history from the ground up is now absolutely standard, but was she yeah. one of the first people who was doing yeah, that? Yeah, it was, it was seen as, yeah, as very pioneering and exciting at the time, and Wolf read her um, and used her book for, for kind of inspiration when she later in life was working on a kind of alternative history of English literature told through the character of Anonymous, which sadly she never finished, but which would have been amazing. Um, but when Power came to the London School of Economics and started sort of kicking around with people who are very involved with the League of Nations as well as Labour, um, later on sort of anti-appeasement movements, she, her history... Sure, she was a pacifist who was anti-appeasement, Yeah, she, she? she'd been involved um, while she was at Cambridge in the Union for Democratic Control and the League of Nations Societies, which were all arguing for, you know, for in- a new order of international cooperation to prevent war in the future. And increasingly over the over the 30s as the second world war began to loom she she was writing history that you know that really had a bearing on the present because she firmly believed that the way that we look at and talk about the past you know does affect how we see ourselves in the you present mean in the sense you see other nations as allies or yeah exactly enemies. she said you know we can't teach british history in isolation because it will give our school children you know an idea that we're superior to other nations and what we need to do is is emphasize kind of kind of common contribution of all places we need to we need to you know study the east and as well as the west not just as this kind of barbaric force as it had often been been shown and yeah and we need to look at you know working class history women's history she was a very pioneering broadcaster on the bbc um and that became um her a main method of of her of her history. I was going to say that actually, like your other scholar, mm. she does seem to be someone who, who was sort of producing intellectual academic work kind of outside the usual structures of the yeah. establishment. You know, she was writing these books for children. She was writing kind of doing radio broadcasts, writing popular stuff. Is that, yeah. do you think, I mean, either she's a sort of early example of the pop don or mm. <laughs> was, it, was there sort of a conscious thing that the patriarchal establishment of academic. I mean, I think she's got a lovely line about how they all scratch out a living taking in each other's laundry. Mm. Yeah, I think exactly. I think, you know, both she and Harrison had been at Cambridge at a time when women weren't given degrees. And I think they there was a real sense that, you know, that they needed to carve out a new way of being a an intellectual or an academic or scholar that, you know, if the establishment wasn't going to have them they were going to do it differently and actually you know they were the audiences that they wanted to reach also weren't the traditional academic ones I mean she really believed that school children were the people that she needed to be addressing if she was going to write if she was going to have a lasting impact on the future which you know isn't necessarily a way to leave a tangible legacy because she wasn't perhaps producing as many scholarly tomes or you know getting she did get a lot of promotions but um she wasn't you know, in the same way that perhaps some of her colleagues who were standing for Parliament, for example, or, you know, pursuing glory in other ways, she was doing work that was 
probably not so glamorous or is her work still read among medievalists and economic historians it is i think there's a there's a conference at girton next weekend about eileen power's legacies which is exciting and um she's definitely still celebrated you know in the women's college and um and amongst medieval historians i think um there's a biography of her by maxine berg who's still working and she um she does come up but I mean, her medieval people is a great read, and her book Medieval English Nunneries, which is her first book, which is a seven hundred page study of the of the convents in England in the sort of thirteenth century, is is also incredibly fun because she had such an eye for detail and charm, and she writes very she's very funny. Um, she should be in print she and read. Very good, an extra plug to go along with with yours. <laughs> uh, I think we we. Coming to the end of the time we've got available, I just want to sort of end by asking, you know, you've done it as a group biography, and mm-hmm. that's a thing that seems to be very popular as a way of way of writing history and writing social history at the moment. I mean, what what was the attraction to you? What do you think you came out came with mm-hmm. out of it, having looked at them all together? I mean, mm-hmm. is there a sort of gestalt that you've? <laughs> I think a real sense of kind of solidarity in a way I mean they it would have been a very different book if they had all known each other and if it had been a portrait of friends and I didn't particularly want that at all I think by putting these lives together and seeing connections or seeing kind of resonances or seeing different ways that they had approached the same questions kind of built up a much wider picture for me about the way that that women lived in this time and it's particularly middle class women isn't it I mean they they are quite narrow this criticism often made of women's one's own is that it works fine if you've got. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, they there's not a wide, a hugely wide range in their backgrounds, but something that they all have in common, I think, is how how expansive their kind of visions were and how how their ideas of equality were, were particularly Harrison and Power were not just about themselves or about people like them, but they both Harrison and Power used the phrase "citizens of the world" for what they think that you know, that the next generation need to think of themselves as, which sort of ties into Wolf in Three Guineas saying, as a woman, I have no country and my country is the whole world. Um, You know, if you're excluded from institutions, you kind of have to find your own community. And I think that's something that I guess I found through them and that I think to some extent they found through each other's examples in in tangible ways. There you go. The world through Mecklenburg Square. Francesca Wade, thank you very much. Mm, Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and I very much hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please do sign up and rate and review us for whichever your podcast provider is. And even better, please tell your friends and family that the Book Club podcast exists. We also have an event to mention. The food writer and Bake Off star Prue Leith and her niece, the pastry chef Peter Leith, will be talking about their lives and love of food with, well... Me, Sam Leith. It's a bit of a family affair. It takes place on Tuesday the 24th of March at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster and you can book tickets at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash prue, P-R-U-E.